Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Joining me for this episode is Chris Haig. Hi. Hi, back again. Back again, you <laughs> cannot keep me. I am basically the bad penny of your show. I keep turning <laughs> up. Every time they think, you know, I'm not going to be there and I'm sort of like, come on. Let's talk about some weird shit together. Yay. Oh, you love your weird shit. I do. I re- it's like I've, I've accepted it as like a cornerstone of my being at this stage. I used to be like, no, I like normal stuff. I do. You know, I like normal stuff and I like kind of queer stuff and all that sort of thing. But then sometimes I really need to scratch the urge with like, hey, do you want to know what a bunch of hikers think they saw? <gasps> Is it a bird crossed with a squirrel? Yes. Come on. <laughs> See, I, li- I like to think that your Elizabeth Fry episode you enjoyed, and it was like, yeah, that was cool, that was interesting. But as soon as you got Mothman, you were like, oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> coming back. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very, it's like, you know, it's. I mentally see it as a bit like, you know those plate spinners who they've got like seven or eight different kind of things going, and if all ever starts to slow down, it's usually an interest. I'm like, oh, I haven't done that in a while, that sort of thing. So this show gets me to kind of inspirational, like the amazing Elizabeth Fry. Odd, like, um, oh my god, what was his name? Is it Robin Friday, the footballer? Oh, legend. Ama- amazing, genuinely amazing. I'm, I'm trying to be a bit thrifty with my books at the moment because I'm paying off some student loans. So I haven't got all the books that I want because I basically want to buy and read books all the time. Um, but he his little um, biography is on my list because he's fucking mental and I love it. Um, and then, you know, some of it is just the plain odd, like, Mothman kind of stuff, which is you know, which is always very fun. Well, hopefully you'll enjoy tonight's one. I, I'm, I don't think fun covers this one. Okay, but it's um, I mean, an interesting did... story about a family. Okay, I mean, to be fair, you didn't contact me beforehand like you did with the um, the oh, I know it has a proper name, but it's just like that Diner Massacre. Was yeah. It the um, yeah, you didn't contact me about, like, okay, are you okay dealing with this kind of stuff? So, it, I'm assuming it's not as harrowing as that, so I'm pretty up for it. Well, you can think of it as, it's not going to be as harrowing as that, or, well, Amy saw that I handled that once before, so now she's just going to spring oh, no. on me at any time. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Sorry about family. Let's bring it on. A quick message to our listeners from our friend and guest Holly Rose about the Cosplay Journal, a coffee table magazine focusing on the diversity and craft of cosplay. Released on the 11th of June, the Cosplay Journal wants to show that not only can anyone be involved in cosplay, but that everyone is capable of learning new skills, creating amazing things, and bringing joy into their own and other people's lives through the art of costume making. 
The first issue features craft focus articles on sewing, armor building and makeup, as well as interviews with some incredible cosplayers who have taken their own paths with their hobby, some becoming professionals, some simply being the perfectionist amateur. They ask, are cosplay guests worth it in their opinion piece and give readers a look into the everyday lives of cosplayers to show you the hard work that goes into these wonderful creations. All of this is accompanied by images of cosplayers from around the UK, showcasing the amazing skills and artistry from the cosplay community. So make sure that you head over to Amazon to pre-order your copy of the Cosplay Journal to ensure that you don't miss out. Stephen Gregory Stainer was born on April 18th, 1965, in Merced, California, the third of five children born to Delbert and Kay Stainer. He had three sisters and an older brother, Carey. On the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, Stephen was approached on his way home from school by a man named Irvin Edward Murphy. Murphy, described by those who knew him as a trusting, naive and simple-minded man, had been enlisted by a convicted child rapist, Kenneth Parnell, who had passed himself off as an aspiring minister. Parnell got Murphy to agree to abduct a young boy so that Parnell could raise him in a religious-type deal, as Murphy later stated. Uh, okay. <laughs> Are you okay? I just yeah, heard the sigh. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I was like, where's this going? Where's this going? You know, I was thinking, oh, is this kid going to grow up to be a serial... Okay, so he's been kidnapped. Lovely. Okay. Acting on instructions from Parnell, Murphy passed out gospel tracts to boys walking home from school that day, and after spotting Stephen, claimed to be a church representative seeking donations. Stephen later claimed that Murphy asked him if his mother would be willing to donate any items to the church. When the boy replied that she would, Murphy then asked Stephen where he lived and if he would be willing to take Murphy to his house. After Stephen agreed, a white Buick driven by Parnell pulled up, and Stephen willingly climbed into the car with Murphy. Parnell then drove a confused Stephen to his cabin in nearby Caffey's Valley instead of his home. Oh, okay. Yeah, never get in a car with people you don't know, kids. Okay, like, like, uh, okay. Well, I, mean, I get it, because we're, you know, 21st century, we both grew up in, like, you know with the whole stranger danger thing and wherever and everything. But this kid was like, what, six or seven, eight maybe? Why? Why? I'm not victim blaming. I'm not victim blaming. I really hope that, like, it isn't like, ah, and then he died. But, oh, why would you go in the back of it? Like, donation and everything, she'd be like, yeah, no, it's fine. I'll walk there. Or, you know, actually, no, I mean, don't, don't, don't show him your house. Hello, strange person who I've never met before, but apparently really wants to either get to know me or my house or my mother. Of course, I'll show you where I live. I just... I don't know, it's a different era and everything, but they were like, oh, it's so innocent and everything, but oh... Yeah. God, it, just, it just creeps me out. It creeps me out, and I'm just sort of like... I, I get like this if I'm watching, like, like a true crime or like a, a crime documentary sort of thing, and I'm always like, you fucking idiot! <laughs> Why didn't you check the back seat for God's sake? You know, I'm that one person who I don't. I'm, I'm fortunately I'm classy enough not to say it in the middle of the movie theater. But mentally, I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Like, I just saw Hereditary, and I was mm. like, there's some stuff that goes on in that. When I'm just like, why the hell aren't you just leaving the house? <laughs> why aren't you? I, you know, I like to think 
that I'm in, I'm not brave, but I'm smart, and that's better in a horror sense. <laughs> I'm not like I'm gonna go rescue, you know, like oh my god, they got a friend. It's not like I'm gonna go rescue her. I'd be like, I'll send flowers to her funeral and just run away. I just, I yeah, Ugh, okay, right, yeah. I need to find out what happens to this kid now, and I really hope it ends well. Unbeknownst to Stephen. Parnell's cabin was located only several hundred feet from his maternal grandfather's residence. No. Yep. What? So uh, he, he's literally next door to his granddad. Okay. Alright. Parnell molested Stephen the first night. He then began raping Stephen 13 days later on December 17th, 1972. Mm. After telling Parnell that he wanted to go home many times during his first week with the man, Parnell told Stephen that he'd been granted legal custody of the boy because his parents could not afford so many children and that they did not want him anymore. Parnell began calling Stephen Dennis Gregory Parnell, retaining Stephen's real middle name and his real birth date when enrolling him in various schools over the next several years. Parnell passed himself off as Stephen's father, and the two moved frequently around California. He allowed Stephen to begin drinking at a young age, and to come and go virtually as he pleased. Parnell had also bounced from one menial job to another, some of his work requiring travel, and he would leave Stephen unguarded, causing an adult Stephen to remark he could have easily used these absences as opportunities to flee, but was unaware how to summon help. He stated that one of the few positive aspects of his life with Parnell was the dog that he received as a gift, a Manchester Terrier that he named Queenie. This dog had been given to Parnell by his mother, who was not aware of Stephen's existence during the period when he was living with Parnell. Okay, so, okay, so he kidnaps his kid, starts doing mm-hmm. horrible things to him, then sort of brainwashes him. They tells him, oh, okay, parents don't actually love you, but I'm going to look after you, gets a dog and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm like, okay, cool, but what? Well, wait, it's not cool, but um, just, yeah, I don't know. That's the one thing I'm like, oh, he got a dog? Oh, that makes it fine. No. Um, <laughs> so he said he started to come, like, come and go as he pleased and started drinking everything. Like, oh, I mean, the come and go as he pleased, I, it must be some kind of brainwashing or something, because why would you not even yeah. immediately just, like, yeah, no, I'm gonna go call the police and try and find my family. Well, the I can understand the fact that he he's made Stephen think that his parents yeah. gave him up for adoption, but he he's got to know there's some stuff wrong. And I don't even if he didn't know. Okay, I'm being molested. I need to go to a hospital to see a doctor or a social worker to see this person. That surely you should know police. Something bad's happening. Go to police. Mm. as a basic even even when he was seven when he was taken surely you can go to the police if something's wrong is is something that's ingrained well i mean i mean what i would say is because i've i've done a tiny bit of this i did a bit of um child psychology and a bit of work with that during my degree mm. and the one thing they do say is that even that you know you would think okay like seven eight they have these you know personalities and you know all that sort of thing but it isn't kind of a necessary... They are still incredibly vulnerable, as, you know, everyone understands. But, yeah, I sort of get what you mean, where it's like, well, why wouldn't you try anything? 
unless he's got the trauma of having, you know, been kidnapped and raped and all this horrible shit happening to him, and it's easier for him to kind of accept, oh yeah, no, it's fine, he, you know, he cares about me, you know, look after me with my family, you know, he gave me a dog, and, you know, he lets me drink and be an adult and all that sort of thing. So it's it's grooming behaviour to the mm. extreme, but I'm not... <sighs> Again, I'm I'm frustrated on his behalf because it seems like oh he could have gone, but then I sort of understand where he's potentially coming from. Yeah. In a way, I mean, you know, I mean, like I said, this is the first I've heard of this, so I don't know where this is going or if he's going to be in a position or anything. But I, yeah, oh, oh god, this poor kid. For a period of eighteen months, a woman named Barbara Mathias lived with Parnell and Stephen. According to Stephen, Matthias, along with Parnell, raped him on nine separate occasions at the age of nine. Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay, yeah, alright. In 1975, on Parnell's instruction, Matthias tried to lure another young boy, who was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with Stephen, into Parnell's car. The attempt was unsuccessful. Matthias later claimed to have been completely unaware that Stephen had, in fact, been kidnapped. Oh, oh, that, that makes it all better, doesn't it? I didn't know he was kidnapped. No, I thought that we were just raping his own son. Oh, oh, well, at least that's, you know, that's off her conscience. Ooh. Yeah, I don't think she's got one of them. Yeah, <sighs> okay. As Stephen entered puberty, Parnell began to look for a younger child to kidnap. Parnell had used Stephen to kidnap children on prior occasions, However, all were unsuccessful, causing Parnell to believe that Stephen lacked the means to be an accomplice. Stephen later revealed that he intentionally sabotaged these failed kidnappings. Ah, okay, that's good. On February 14th, 1980, Parnell and a teenage friend of Stephen named Randall Sean Poorman kidnapped five-year-old Timothy White in Yukia, California. Motivated in part by the young boy's distress, Stephen decided to return the boy to his parents. On March 1st, 1980, while Parnell was away at his night security job, Stephen left with White and hitchhiked to Yukia. Unable to locate White's home address, he decided to have White walk into the police station to ask for help without him. Police officers spotted and detained both of them. Stephen immediately identified Timothy White and then revealed his own identity and story. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, they're all right. They're okay. See, it's getting better. It's getting better. Yeah, yeah. It was more. It was just. I was thinking. Oh, Jesus! It's going to be end up like he ends up killing him, and it's like a weird. I don't know. Yeah. Um, magic. Yeah, and it's. I would because how old is he at this stage? Uh, this now. is nineteen eighty. He's born in sixty-five, so fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. All right. No, I was just. I mean, mentally going through it. Also, he's fourteen, fifteen. Um, yeah, if it's 14 and 15, then it's just a case of, yeah, sorry, yeah, I'm mentally just trying to, I'm working out the chronology and everything, but also, so, somewhere along the line, because he said he's been intentionally sabotaging these kidnappings, mm-hmm. and, you know, all that sort of thing, and he says, oh yeah, now I'm going to return him, and all that sort of thing, so you do wonder what changed from it, from a kid who kind of voluntarily stays, and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, whether or not it's just fear, you know, if he's got nowhere to go and he's just thinking, well, I can't leave because I've got, you know, no money and everything, or he'll catch me and that'll risk 
provoking killing. Like there's been interviews with serial killers, uh, all the survivors of serial killers before. Well, they've said, you know, they've been asked, well, why did you stay with them for so long when you had a chance? It's like, because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, yeah. you, you know, you don't want to risk provoking them or pissing them off or, you know, because that's making it more likely then for them to kill you. Oh, yeah, it's understandable. If you're already afraid for your life, yeah. you're going to do whatever you can to preserve it. And whilst running away could help, it's also, you know, that's, that's definitely going to piss them off if it fails. Yeah. It's completely yeah. understandable, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's the thing of do you stay and hope and hope and, you know, a bag of the rose and hopefully they won't kill you? Or is it you take the risk and actually think, well, yeah, I, I think if you're in that situation and you kind of think there's a stronger chance of me making out than the risen, then mm. I think you have to go for it. So I, I, I don't know what it was particularly about Timothy White, although I think it's because they've said before it was like, you know, they've had previous failed attempts and this one was with a um a friend and this Tim White got actually did get kidnapped and then they decided to kind of take him away and everything. So it it, it it's a positive and I kinda hope that Stephen can kind of adjust because he's if he was kidnapped at seven and now he's say at least fourteen mm. that's at least half of his life. In fact Yeah half of it that he'll remember the most, you know, because when from ages of about zero to five, you don't remember it. You don't, you, you know, it's, your brain just kind of filters stuff out and kind of, sort of goes, no, you don't really need that anymore. It stores all the skills and all that kind of knowledge, but all the kind of episodic memory and all that kind of stuff kind of gets shunted away into the back. So he spent half of his life with a guy Suffering, I'm presuming, regular sexual abuse. During the fact, he says it started. He started getting raped. What was it like? Twelve days after the thirteen days after the mm. um, thing happened. So I'm gonna guess it's not stopped, unless you know it's like, oh, he got too old, and that's the reason why they're picking younger ones. And oh, I watch too many crime shows. I really do. I'm. It's awful, but I'm. You know, I've just finished a. Sorry, this is, I'm not advertising. There are other streaming services available, <laughs> but I have just finished The Alienist on Netflix, mm. which is amazing, um, and it deals with the murder of um, child prostitutes in kind of Victorian era uh, New York. Jesus, I know. Well, it's all it's like boy prostitutes and everything who are mutilated and killed and all that sort of thing. And it has weird undertones, but it's this whole idea of if they go past a certain age and start looking too old, yeah, then, you know, they're no longer useful or anything. So I I, I don't know. I kind of want to get into it because I, I can't remember what the... What's the name of the, the actual bastard who did this? I keep forgetting. Kenneth Parnell. Parnell, that's it. I mean, I don't know if there's any interviews with Parnell or anything where he might explain it, but I don't. Even, even when you watch these interviews with serial killers and stuff, they don't explain it in like the most logical sense sometimes they do to be fair but a lot of it is just like oh i didn't do anything or i didn't you know this or that or that sort of thing so yeah anyway we left with them um in the police station by daybreak on march 2nd 1980 parnell had been arrested on suspicion of abducting both boys after the police checked into parnell's background they found a previous sodomy conviction from 1951 okay both children were reunited with their families that day. In 1981, Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping. Sorry, tried and convicted of kidnapping White and Stephen in two separate trials. 
He was sentenced to seven years, but was paroled after serving five. What? Yeah, five years for having Stephen for seven. So he was sentenced for the same... Oh, okay. Parnell was not charged with the numerous sexual assaults on Stephen and other boys, because most of them had occurred outside the jurisdiction of the Merced County Prosecutor, or were by then outside the statute of limitations. Oh, fuck off. Because the statute of limitations on rape is brilliant. Wait, is that... I thought they'd... Okay. I thought they'd kind of removed that. You know what? The historic sexual abuse allegations and that sort of thing. I thought they'd, like... I don't know. Is it... Well, I mean... Well, this is 1980. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking kind of with all the, you know the Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, all that kind of stuff that's come out in the past kind of 12 months. I'm just I'm just thinking to myself, I was like, did something in the statute change or something in the law change where it's like, there is no limitation on it now? But yeah, so this is fucking horrible. So, yep. I really hope it has changed. Um, I'm just going to have a look. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm just looking at an article here um, from last year. 34 states impose limits on when a rape can be brought forward ranging from 3 to 30 years after the assault. Oh. So depending on where you are, if if it's 3 years after the assault, sorry, tough, but other states can give up to 30 years. It may have changed since. This is a, a little bit older, yeah. but... Oh, God. Yeah, so in 1980, I imagine the same rules, if not worse. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, the more you know. The Mendocino County prosecutors, acting almost entirely alone, decided not to prosecute Parnell for the sexual assaults that occurred in their jurisdiction. This is likely due to the prosecutors' belief that they were protecting Stephen because rape and molestation victims were seen as damaged goods. Oh. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not touching that. Because uh, we will be here for a good hour or so. But no, okay. <laughs> they may have also felt that they were protecting the Stainer parents' reluctance to discuss Parnell's crimes because of the stigma of male sexual abuse. <sighs> See, okay, that I that I sort of get because let's you know this is 2018, and this week Terry Crews, you know, amazing actor, all around decent guy, has been in hearings in the past couple of weeks testifying. Yeah that he was, you know, sexually assaulted. And look at this, you know, this is 30, 38 years, 30-odd years since. And there is still a huge stigma about it, you know. I I know um, people of different genders who have experienced sexual abuse and kind of sexual assault survivors and everything. And there is still a massive stigma if you identify. Oh, well, yeah. actually, no. I mean, actually, no. I was going to say, like, across all genders, there's still a massive stigma about it. But there is a almost a unique kind of stigma that comes with being, you know, whether you're cis male or trans male or male identifying whatsoever, of coming forward and saying, I was sexually assaulted, I was sexually abused, because there is still such a weird, why did you let it happen, you know, the blame, it's a, it's a weird cocktail of, like, shame and toxic masculinity and horrible, horrible stuff that I've seen really negatively impact on uh, friends of mine. Um, one of whom the police said, well, there's just no evidence, we can't do anything. And it was just shitty. And it's just a shitty way to live. Um, so no, I'm, it, it's horrible, but I'm really not surprised. Yeah. 
even if they were trying to be like, cool, we're doing this so you can go up and you don't have to have this cloud hanging over you, which, okay, that I can sort of understand. But change doesn't happen by just kind of covering shit up. Mm. I'm frustrated, and this is 30 odd years ago, and I can't change anything, but I get both perspectives. I get the side that really wanted justice, and they would have talked about it, but then what would Steve's life have been like? You know, maybe he's still out there, and he's actually talking about this, and it's a thing. Or, I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know, but it's... I don't, I don't know what to say, to be honest. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! Listen. No. 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 I feel like I've given you. So, well, I know I've given you a, a harsher subject, but I didn't realize. No. 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 Oh, listen. I'm not. I, I'm not coming from the perspective of you know that I'm very, very fortunate that I've never had anything like this happen to me. But it's because it's happened to people that I've yeah. known and that I care about. So I get mad on their behalf, even though the vast majority of my amazing, wonderful, loved ones. I've just gone on and like, well, do you know what? It's a part of me, but it doesn't define me. And I'm like, that is the best way to do it, that sort of thing. But then equally, I would, and this isn't a threat, but if I ever did find out who it was, or, you know, was in a particular situation, I would at least, I would at least make them hurt a bit. Yeah. Like, like just, 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 just a, just a smidge, just a, just a, you know, just a, just a bit. Um, and then some. But yeah, honestly, it's it's absolutely fine. But it's just, I, I think shit like this just riles people up and gets such a visceral reaction. Yeah, no, I I can understand it. I had a friend. Well, I've had a few friends who have been raped and sexually assaulted. Mm. But one in particular, when we're in sixth form together, oh, my no. best friend, incredibly close, she had been raped and. Like how you said, she wouldn't tell me who it was because she knew yeah. I'd probably, at a minimum, them. assault them. But yeah, pro- probably try and kill them. Yeah, and it's, but it's so, it, it's a topic no one wants to talk about because it's so brutal. Probably more so than murder in a lot of ways because it's something that people have to keep living with in a way murder victims don't and can destroy lives and yeah but it but it happens to so many people you you have to kind of talk about it yeah no no i agree i mean i think at least from my perspective in the i think a lot is also tied up on the fact that it's by its nature it is you know sexual and because we're, we're much more likely to not want to talk about anything sexual if that makes any sense you know like mm. balancing that if it's like you know um, and it, it is violence. It's not about kind of sexual desire or anything. It's about power and violence and yeah. you know just all that sort of thing. Um, but when it, I'm trying to find the best way to to articulate it, um, because it is so inherently linked to, you know, like I said, sex. We don't talk about sex. We don't normalise it. You know, there's a lot of like, oh, sex positive, that sort of thing, which is great, you know, absolutely for it. But then you also need to look at the other side of it when it isn't all kind of relationships and, you know, consent and all that sort of thing. Because on the flip side of that, you've got when it when it goes wrong. And we need to talk yeah. about that as much and normalise that. And, you know, if you're not normalise it, then normalise the discussion of it and make sense that, yeah, no, if this is happening to you or, you know, like it's, it's like um, abusive relationships. I'm very fortunate in that I've both never been in an abusive relationship and also 
to my knowledge, have not been friends or you know, close friends with anyone who has been in one or is currently in one. However, I've certainly, you know, done the research in it, and I've listened to experiences and all that sort of thing, and it's, you know, the warning signs, which is like, you know, if someone's being possessive, if they're being evasive, if they're being emotionally manipulative, if they're being, you know, physically... It's just all this kind of stuff that gets talked about, but it's all still very hush-hush. There's no out-and-out yeah. out saying, like, hi... If this is happening, this is the sign of an emotional, emotionally abusive relationship, so you really need to talk to someone. Or, even addressing it, and this is something I've seen pop up many times, I think is great, actually getting down on the ground level and speaking to, you know, it is primarily guys, you know, hold their hands up, and speaking to them, okay, so this is not normal behaviour, because it's not inherent that they, you know, oh, well, you know, it's in his blood, he's going to go off and be a rapist, or he's going to be a murderer, or he's going to be whatever. No, no, it's learned behaviour. Yeah. You know, there might be the odd predilection, I'm not going to deny that, but then equally, I'll, the vast 99% of it is, you know, is societal, is the idea that, yeah, you can, you know, like, perfect example, um, do you remember the Dapper Laughs thing from a few years ago? Mm. Yeah. For those of you who were listening, you don't know. So basically, Dapper Laughs was a uh, comedian, quote-unquote, and his thing was going around grabbing girls' asses and then trying to flirt with them or trying to pull it off as a joke and everything. So he was basically sexually assaulting yeah. women on camera and playing it off as a joke. And the minute it happened, it basically, and quite rightfully so, his entire like, his show got cancelled, his career crumbled, all that sort of thing. Um... You know, but it's that kind of behaviour that young lads see, and they say, "Oh, do you know what? He's a he's a typically handsome guy. He's going round. He's flirting with you know beautiful women, all that sort of thing." And so they normalise that behaviour. It's the same thing that they've said about porn, in the you know watching that kind of behaviour. And I'm not like anti-porn. I think you know if you want to use it, go ahead. But normalising that kind of behaviour, when it's particularly violent or particularly misogynistic or kind of dark and everything. You know, at such a young age, it imprints, and they think, do you know what? That's the right, that's the right way to do it. You know, and then it feeds into girls. Then, mm. or you know, I'm not going to generalise. We've got boys do it as well. Whether you know, saying if you don't send me a picture of your boobs or you know your genitals or whatever, I'm going to go and tell everyone that you are a prude. And if you do do it, they're going to call you a slut, or they're going to say this, or they're going to say that. So there's just a lot of work that just needs to go in and kind of unpicking all the shit because it's that yeah. kind of shit that then leads into stuff like you know rape and sexual assault well i i think it starts even earlier than that mm. look at i i don't have kids so i don't know if this is still a thing but it always was when i was young which is oh he's hitting you it's okay it means he likes you oh yes all that bullshit like infant school level like five or yeah. six years if you like the girl hurt her to get her attention yeah that's that i think that is the the earliest like that's the start point where it all stems from it's oh, okay it's... to boys to hurt girls if they like them yeah yeah oh oh i mean the whole yeah exactly you know like oh oh he's, he, oh no he pulled on your hair but it just means he likes you if you're saying mean things it's just because he likes you you know reinforcing that kind of shit i mean i'm mad enough that it's not really to do with it, it's kind of linked but not really, where it's like you know, you have a baby boy or something and he's automatically in like, you know, lady killer t-shirts, or if it's yeah. him and a, and a you know, 
a girl is only say about six months or whatever playing, it's like, oh, they're gonna get married with a you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Sex is not the be all and end all. Sexual attraction is not the be all and end all. You can have platonic relationships, you can have all that sort of thing, but let's be right, you're all sexualizing a six year old. I know you don't mean to and you think, Oh, it's just, you know, a bit of fun, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's that kind of shit. And then when you when you start talking about like, oh, you know, he's pulling her hair and chasing her around and trying to lift up a skirt to see a knickers that sort of thing. Oh, he's just playing boys with boys. Nothing chaps my heart, nothing more than the phrase boys will be boys. Yep, I hate it. Because it's it's learned. It's a learned behaviour. Don't mm. go around saying like, Oh, it's just how, you know, boys act and it's a masculine thing. No, it's not. Because you know what? There's plenty of like so called feminine behaviours that guys used to do and it's not a thing anymore and it should be. Guys paint I know this is a very trivial one, but it's a point. Guys used to paint their nails before going into battle. In the French court, guys used to wear high heels, but all of a sudden because it's feminine, oh no, it's not masculine to wear that sort of thing. Like, gender is a spectrum. Chill out. But do, normalizing these kind of so, these behaviors just makes everything incredibly toxic, and is then putting so much pressure on everybody. <sighs> I know I said I had nothing to say. That was clearly a lie. <laughs> I was like, I have nothing to say for the next fifteen seconds. Ugh. Sorry, yeah, um, yeah. So he's fine and every uh, yeah, Stephen thingy. Yeah. Sorry, I need a drink. I've been talking that long. <laughs> I was fine. like, I need a drink. Mm. Okay. Oh God. Are you okay to carry on? Yeah, yeah, no, no. Cool. I did no, I did this in a job interview a few weeks ago. I was having a job interview for something in my team. I didn't get it. It's not the end of the world or anything. But the last thing was like, hey, it's what do you think is wrong with um, the education system? And I just talked at them for five minutes, and then at the end, I went, I am so sorry. I just talked <laughs> at you for five minutes, and they burst out laughing. And I just realized I had the same thing. Oh, that's what okay. happens when you're passionate on a subject. It's, it's all good. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Irvin Murphy and Randall Pullman, who had helped abduct Timothy White, were convicted of lesser charges. Both claimed that they knew nothing of the sexual assaults on Stephen. Barbara Mathias was never arrested. Stephen remembered the kindness that Uncle Murphy had called, had showed him in his first week of captivity while they were both under the influence of Parnell's manipulation, and he believed that Murphy was as much Parnell's victim as he and Timothy White. Stephen Stainer's kidnapping and its aftermath prompted California lawmakers to change state laws to allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases. Well, that's some at least. Yeah, something good has come out of that. Hmm. Which I'm finding is a a pattern in a lot of these stories. Something bad happens, the legal system is not appropriate, and then they change it. So Yeah. I mean, it's all a bit kind of bolting, bolting the stable door after the horse is loose, but... Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, if it, I mean, it won't really stop other things, but God knows they might keep the perpetrators in prison longer, rather than five years. Mm. After returning to his family, Stephen had trouble adjusting to a more structured household, as he had been allowed to smoke, drink, and do as he pleased while he lived with Parnell. In an interview with Newsweek shortly after he was reunited with his family, Stephen said, I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should never have come home. What would I would I have been better off if I didn't? Oh Jesus, that's sad. 
Yeah. Oh god, that poor kid. Why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Oh. Yeah. Doesn't that just break your heart though? Stephen initially underwent brief counselling, but never sought additional treatment. He also refused to disclose all of the details of sexual abuse he endured whilst living with Parnell. In a 2007 interview, Stephen's sister Corey said that her brother did not seek counselling because their father said he didn't need any. Okay. Mm. Says he doesn't need counselling and won't hug him. Father of the year. Yeah, well, again, products of the times, you know. I know, but I, I can't say, help but feel about that. I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's incredibly... I'm shitting everything, and I get... I don't know, maybe the dad just thought, well, try and normalise it for him and just, you know... Mm. But if it's, you know, the ace is everything, it won't, you know, super progressive in terms of that kind of stuff. But, yeah, that's a shame. I just... I just feel so sorry for this kid. You know, he's been pulled out of one home and everything. He's like, well, what's the point of me going back to a family that I don't really recognise anymore? And then, you know, his dad won't hug him and he's having to live under, you know, more rules and all that kind of stuff. It's just, if, if you if you need counselling for anything, Christ knows you need it for that. Yeah. His sister said Stephen got on with his life but was pretty messed up. He was teased by other children at school for being molested and eventually dropped out. Stephen began drinking frequently and was eventually kicked out of the family home, and his relationship with his father remained strained. Oh, lovely. Wonderful. Your abused son is going through some issues, and you decide to kick him out. Great. You don't think seeing a counsellor would have helped, even though he develops an alcohol problem, because he was introduced to it at a really young age, and it's probably a way for him to get control. But you know what? He doesn't need a bit of therapy or a bit of counselling, it should just man up. Okay. In 1985, at the age of 20, Stephen married 17-year-old Jodie Edmondson. The couple had two children, Ashley and Stephen Jr. Jodie later said that having a family of his own helped Stephen find some peace, although he still blamed himself for being abducted. Well, I hope he was, you know, able to find a bit of peace. Yeah. Mm. Stephen later worked with child abduction groups, spoke to children about stranger danger, and granted interviews about his kidnapping. He also found some help in religion and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right, okay. On September 17th, 1989, Stephen was heading home from work on a rainy afternoon when his motorcycle collided with a car that pulled out into traffic. He sustained fatal head injuries and died at Merced Community Medical Center shortly after. Oh no. At the time of his accident, Stephen was riding without a license and was not wearing a helmet. The driver who struck Stephen fled from the scene but was later surren- but later surrendered to police shortly before the funeral. God, so he was only what, twenty four? Yeah. Twenty four. God almighty. On September 20th, Stephen's funeral was held at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Merced. 500 people attended, including 14-year-old Timothy White, who was one of Stephen's pallbearers. I mean, I don't know if I can call that sweet or touching, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He was there for the person who, who saved him. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so much. And it's just a, a car accident. Yeah. He goes through all that and he gets, you know, knocked off his bike. When he's putting his life back together as well. Yeah. I mean, like, he was a 
idiot for not wearing a helmet and no license and all that sort of thing, but like, 24. That's so young. Mm. That's so, so young. Jeez. When Stephen was kidnapped in 1972, his brother Carey, older by four years, became jealous of his younger brother. Stephen was all that his parents thought about, and they put so much time and effort into locating their missing son that Carey often felt isolated and abandoned. When his brother eventually returned home, Carey felt that even more attention was given to his brother and became resentful. Uh J.P. Miller, the screenwriter who wrote the film I and Stephen, based upon Stephen's abduction, interviewed Carey about his feelings towards his brother. Carey told him his head was all bloated out. He never really got along well after he came back. All of a sudden, Stephen was getting all of these gifts, getting all of this clothing, getting all of this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm sure I was. I got put on the back burner, you might say. Okay, I mean, jealousy, I kind of understand that. After Stephen's death, Kerry became even more isolated, spending a great deal of time in the mountains. He lost all ambition and was working a dead-end job while living with his uncle, Jerry Stainer, who Carey would later claim molested him. It was during this time in the mountains that Carey claimed to have seen Bigfoot. Okay. Alright. Fair enough. Okay, the older brother saw Bigfoot. Fair enough. In 1990, Carey's uncle Jerry was found murdered. Uh, Merced County Assistant Sheriff Henry Strength said Jerry Stainer came home from lunch and apparently walked in on a burglary. His killer shot him with Jerry Stainer's own shotgun. Kerry Stainer was living with his uncle at the time and was questioned, but was later cleared as a suspect. Oh. In 1997, Kerry was hired as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, just outside of Highway 140 Arch Rock entrance to Yosemite National Park. Between February and July 1999, he murdered two women and two teenagers. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, we're taking a, a turn now. Not where I saw this going. Okay. Did you did your hopes get perked when he saw Bigfoot? Well, I thought, oh, <laughs> Bigfoot, and he's going to turn out to have a, like you know a psychic revelation or something. I didn't. Uh, it, oh my god, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> this is. Yeah, this poor family is all I <laughs> all I can say. In February 1999, Carol Sund her daughter Julie, and Julie's friend Sylvia Pelosa checked into Cedar Lodge. Carrie approached their motel room late at night. He insisted he needed to fix a leak in their bathroom, and Carol reluctantly let the handyman inside. Once inside, Carrie pulled out the gun. He bound them and dragged Carol in the bathroom and strangled her. Next, he took Sylvina and strangled her as Julie lay helpless in the bedroom. When he returned, he tortured and raped her for hours. Then he put her in a car and slit her throat. He dumped her body in brush and then threw Carol and Sylvina into the trunk of Carol's car. He set it ablaze and watched it burn. Carol and Sylvina were found in the trunk of the charred remains of Carol's Pontiac rental car. The bodies were burned beyond recognition and were identified using dental records. A note was sent to police with a hand-drawn map indicating the location of Julie. The top of the note read, We had fun with this one. Ooh. Investigators went to the location depicted on the map and found the remains of Julie. Detectives began interviewing employees of the Cedar Lodge Motel where the first three victims had been staying just before their deaths. One of these employees was Carrie Stainer, 
but he was not considered a suspect at that point because he had no criminal history and remained calm during police interview. Upon meeting Carey, FBI agent Jeff Reineck asked if Carey had ever seen the movie Billy Jack, noting Carey's resemblance to the film's hero. Initially, Carey denied seeing the movie. However, 19 minutes later, after building rapport during the drive to the FBI headquarters in Sacramento from the nudist resort where he'd been picked up, Carey surprised Reineck by reciting several of Billy Jack's lines from the film, raising suspicions within Reineck that Carey may have lied to him about the case. Five months later, Carey would go on to murder Yosemite Institute naturist Jody Ruth Armstrong. Carey pulled up to Armstrong's cabin just as she was leaving. He tried striking up a conversation about Bigfoot before he pulled out a gun and forced her back into the cabin. He bound her with duct tape and dragged her back outside to his car. As he drove his car away through a field, Armstrong pushed open the passenger door and leapt from the vehicle. She was running as fast as she could, hoping to reach safety. Her friends were just 100 yards away. Oh, God. Carey jumped out of the car after her, charged up behind her with his knife, and began cutting through her neck until he decapitated her. Fucking hell. Jesus. He then threw her body in a ditch. When Jodie was found, eyewitnesses said they saw a blue 1979 International Scout parked outside the cabin where she was staying. Detectives traced this vehicle to Carey. This caused Carey to become the prime suspect in the case. FBI agents John Bowles and Jeff Reineck found Carey staying at Laguna del Sol Nudist Resort in Wilton, where he was arrested. His vehicle yielded evidence linking him to Jodie Armstrong. During his interrogation, Carey confessed to the four murders, as well as to sending the map to find Julie's body. Carey claimed after his arrest that he had fantasised about murdering women since he was seven years old, long before the abduction of his brother. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I was surprised by that part, because I thought this was all a result of what happened with his brother. So it's just... Wow. Okay. So a kidnapping victim and a serial killer just happened to be in the same family. Yeah. Jesus. During his trial, Carey pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers claimed that the Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness, manifesting itself not only in the murders, but also in his obsessive compulsive disorder and request to be provided with child pornography in return for his confession. No, no. Surely as soon as someone says, I will confess if you give me this, that's admitting that you did it by saying you yeah. can confess. It's like, well, surely that is a confession in itself. That that in itself <laughs> is just, it's it's like going, I tell you what, I'll confess to this murder if you let me have the big knife. I'll let yeah. you know the, 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 the bloody knife that you found in my thing. If you let me have that, I'll confess to the murder. It's like, mm, no... Oh, God. Okay. I mean, okay. So, if one thing is shown, it proves that genetics aren't everything. Mm-hmm. And you never know when there's a serial killer lurking. It could be your brother or God knows. Jesus. Ugh. Dr. Jose Arturo Silva testified that Carey had mild autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, and paraphilia, the intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, behaviours, and individuals. Oh, okay, so that just... Oh, that co- yeah, that covers all manner of things, doesn't it? Yeah. Like those people who are, like, sexually attracted to, like... Well, it goes from, like, the mild... 
I'm in quote unquote brackets mild like, oh, I like having sex with my car to, you know, paedophilia. Mm-hmm. Mm. Lovely. Kerry was nevertheless found sane and convicted of four counts of first degree murder by a jury on August 27th, 2002. During the sentencing, Santa Clara County Superior Court Judge Thomas C. Hastings abruptly left the courtroom so he could compose himself in private. He returned several minutes later, red-faced and misty-eyed. The circumstances of this case are horrendous and devastating, he said, before announcing the sentence of death. Hastings rejected a defence motion seeking a new trial based on the claims of juror misconduct. Defence lawyer Marcia Morrissey asserted that three jurors had failed to disclose on questionnaires during the selection process that they had been molested as children. Then she alleged that the same three jurors discussed the abuse during deliberations. Hastings determined that the conduct did not deprive Carey of a fair trial and that there was overwhelming evidence for a conviction. See, I know defence lawyers are a good thing and everyone deserves one. Yeah. But trying to say, well, these three jurors talked about their own trauma, therefore it throws out the case, is a bit of a low thing to do. I, yeah. I mean, it's... <sighs> It's the moral quandaries. It's like, you know, your your role, your job is to defend your client. You know, in the case of someone, you know, if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you, for your court-appointed, you know, defense attorney or whatever. Mm. That's still their job. They can't yeah. throw it. Otherwise, you know, it's, it looks bad on them, obviously, professionally, but it's also kind of them not doing their job. Morally, the whole thing is horrible, but, I mean, you've got to use every every chance you get, I guess. That's why I, but there's, I, I, I but there's every lawyer. chance you get that relates to the case, but how how is that... That argument of these guys didn't say that they were molested as children, but then talked about it together, how does that affect whether this person was guilty of murdering four women? Well, it's, no, no, yeah. It should surely it should be. I'm going to do what I can to defend you, pertinent to the case. Well, it sort of is because um, these people have experienced uh, trauma or any kind of criminal activity. It makes them more inclined towards a guilty verdict, regardless. So, um, perfect example of this. So, do you, uh, you have you heard or listened to the podcast Serial? No. Okay. I, I know of it, but I've not listened to it. Yeah. So it did two seasons. The second was crap, but the first season was really good. And it was about the murder of Hay... Oh, I really want to get her name right. Hay Min Lee, who was a teenager in the 1990s. Mm. And a young lad, her ex-boyfriend, I believe, um, called Adnan Syed, basically, was arrested for it, and he is currently serving uh, a life sentence for it. What they did, and they did this on the thing, is that they sh- showed the audio of each pool of jurors being asked by the judge, saying, like, okay, have you ever been convicted of a tra- crime, or have you ever had a crime committed against you? And it's the ones where, if a crime was ever committed against them, that he dismissed, because it's, it's prejudice. So I, I, I do get what the lawyer was trying to do, because saying that they didn't mm. disclose this kind of bias. You know, if, we be, if, if, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, you know, this bias towards, yeah, this guy's a disgusting piece of shit, which he is, but more of a bias towards that. I get that's what they were arguing, basically saying, like, well, you know, we didn't know this, 
it should have been someone who was entirely neutral, if possible, mm. who can then give it an objective thing in terms of the jury. So, not morally, it's underhand. Yeah. But in terms of them doing their job, it it sort of makes sense, and it is something that I can definitely understand the reasoning for why. But could they not, with that same kind of argument, turn around and say, but Carey's saying he himself was molested as a child? And these oh, guys yeah. were, but they haven't sided with him. You know, could they um, not twist it around to, well, they must have had, they could have had sympathy for him being fellow abuse victims, but they still found him guilty. That's how guilty he is that they kind of stepped back and went, no, you if, are, you, if you get what I'm it, Yeah, yeah, no, no, I understand. If they'd had that kind of like, well, he was a product of his time, but they'd also found him sane. Mm. which puts the illness then that it's kind of self-directed, it's of his volition to do this. Yes, he's suffering from, for example, autism and OCD and all that sort of thing, but there are millions of people out there with those conditions, you know, and, you know, it's the tiniest of tiny percentages that actually end up going on to, you know, commit any crime whatsoever. So, I, I understand what you're saying, that, you know, they could turn it around and then like, oh, well, he suffered this, but, you know, According to you know the information we've got, I believe, you know he wasn't actually molested. I don't believe he was in the information you gave. No, you said we, we you said he wanted to do to do this from like the age of seven, so it predated the actual um yeah. the the um abduction of Stephen. So it then becomes so if this has always been in him and he's been waiting, if it had been like a major compulsion, then the fact he's never been arrested for a crime. Before, however, however old he was when he killed the four people, shows at least you know willing and intent. If it had been a compulsion, if it had been like, oh, well, it's just a behaviour I couldn't control or everything, then why wasn't there a pattern leading up to it? So the fact he restrained himself and showed self-control kind of underplayed his you know mental. You know, he was going to try and pull the insane card. So it's a, mm. <sighs> it's it's. It's a, hor- it's a horrible one, and the whole point is, you know, they're just trying to make their arguments. They don't always have to match up. They can definitely take a different argument with different individuals, but mm. it's got to be a hell of a job being a defence lawyer. Yeah. I don't mean it. I don't mean it in a good way. Jen's sons, the husband and father of victims Carol and Julie Sons, told the court, while standing only feet away from Stainer, he tortured my daughter. I know he had no trouble killing little girls in the middle of the night, I just wish he would step up and take his punishment now. Carey's parents, Kay and Delbert Stainer, said they were prepared for the sentence, but believed their son should have been shown mercy. They said that Carey is a sick man who was deprived a fair trial by a biased judge. I stand by my son, Delbert Stainer said. If he had gotten help, there would have been four people alive today. Yeah. Carey Stainer is currently on death row, awaiting execution at San Quentin Prison in California. See... This is something I, I really hate about Delbert Stainer. He wasn't there for Stephen after everything he went through, but he says he stands by his son who murdered four women. Wow. Okay, so the dad is confirmed a piece of shit. Yeah. It's like Lovely. you have Stephen saying, you know, why won't my dad hug me? And then this other person saying, well, if he'd have gotten help, it would have, wouldn't have happened. You know, I stand wow. by, I stand by Carrie. It's not his fault. The same guy who said his son who was raped repeatedly didn't need counselling said his murder son should have had counselling to make it not happen. I'm blaming that, the dad. The dad is an arsehole. Yeah, oh, listen, the dad's... I mean, yes, you can argue he's a product of his time and all that sort of thing, 
but he's also a prick by the sound yeah. of things. And it also sounds like, uh, you know, super toxic masculinity, misogynistic. Because that's right, you know, when it was his his son being kidnapped and raped and all this horrible shit happened to him, they were like, oh, it's fine, just man up, all that sort of thing. And now his other son, or, you know, one of his other children, has gone on to kill four women, and he's like, oh, no, it's, it's a mental issue, that sort of thing. Because he was the one taken away from it, so... Oh, fuck this guy most severely. Yeah. Yeah, he can go. He can go diddle himself with a hot poker. Mm. <sighs> I'm really glad you brought. I'm really glad you brought me on for such a light episode, Amy. It made a real change of pace. Well, you've had you've had a few light episodes know, for a while. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> no, I, I know. It's been it's been a while since the massacre. Yeah. I see. I I knew this wasn't. Oh, I I don't know if I share. I was going to say, no, I knew this wasn't as bad as the massacre, but in some way, obviously, they're, they're both horrible stories. But I thought, oh, you, you handled the massacre, you're fine. This one won't bother you as much. And then I start in the story, I'm like, why did I not give you a heads up? This I'm a yeah. horrible person. Yeah. This story's oh, horrific. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, listen, it's fine. I just, yeah, I, as you know, the dear listeners will be able to attest, I got quite, and not to be that you did as well, you know, not quite, you know, passionate about certain topics and all that sort of thing. But it's, I guess, in the scale of, hey, not that, not as many people died, you know, because it was only like the four people of the brother, which I didn't see coming. That is like, that, that's, that's a very, it sounds awful to say, that's quite a good twist. Yeah. When I found out these things were like, because I, I found out about Carrie first, um, because like yourself saying, you know, I, I kind of into the true crime stuff. And I found out about Kerry, and then it mentioned his brother Stephen, and I started looking at it, and I was like, how are these two extraordinary, amazing cases happen to the same yeah. family? It's it's so shocking that, because they're, they're both one in a million type things, really, and it happens to the same family. I thought, I, I kind of, I've got to tell this story because it's it's so almost unbelievable that it could happen. Yeah. <sighs> And I'm going to say, in a, in a way, I kind, I'm kind of glad I gave it to you in the sense of, <laughs> because I, I didn't even really know this, but you said you've done the child psychology and stuff. So it's like you kind of mm. gave a really interesting insight into into Stephen and some of his stuff. So yeah, no, yeah, um, intentionally I mean, geared towards you. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, listen, that's I mean, because of the social work I do at the moment, but I my undergrad is in psychology, and I'm just finishing up my. Uh, psychology, I think that's right, psychology and neuroscience and mental health masters. So I'm kind of always, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person who is attracted a bit to the darker side of stuff. Not all the time, I don't think I could like live in it and do that as like a job. But, mm. you know, I've always had that side where I'm just like, oh, cool, like murders, true crime unsolved mysteries that's all so i kind of like that stuff anyway so i'm i'm pleased that i'm now your like dark shit correspondent <laughs> um you know just been like oh cool you know here's a here's a thing where 80 people died bring up chris and i'm like 80 people died sign me up no um that sounds awful <laughs> sounds like a social <laughs> yeah i think we need to worry about are you going to be a topic of this show one day <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I couldn't kill him. I mean, I know we like said. Oh yeah, like cool. the I. Mm, I know this isn't like the right podcast for that. 
I could kill, but only in like defense. You know, if like someone tried to hurt like someone I loved. I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a self defense killer. I could like if I saw someone threatening, you know, a member of my family or like one of my best friends or a yeah. dog something, I'd be like, cool. If I stab you, that's like totally on accident, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but I could never like premeditate. Just the fact I don't have the patience for it. I think you've got to be incredibly patient when you're planning out a murder. So I've heard, you know. So I just yeah, it's not it's it. It's it's not in me. I think I would just apologise all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then stop. I mean, I could. I mean, I should. I'm sorry. And just just keep doing that. So no, I don't. Think, hopefully, I won't become a topic. <laughs> hey, that. I mean, to be fair, imagine your ratings. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like it'd be a bit like finding out that, like, you know, Simon Mayo was a serial killer, wouldn't it? All the podcasts he's been on would go through them. <laughs> Going like, oh. yeah. If, if ever you want to help my ratings, you know, go go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest; it's not really on my to-do list at the moment. Um, but I'll 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 put it in I'll put it in the back pocket, Amy, just in case. <laughs> oh. If all else fails, what better way to advertise than just like you know, killing someone and being like, "Yes, I am indeed convicted of three counts of first-degree murder," but. Have you checked out Eccentric Earth on iTunes? <laughs> just just That's do a plug it. for it in the middle of court. <laughs> do you have anything to say? Yes. You can find Eccentric Earth on iTunes, Stitcher, Spodbay, <laughs> all, all reputable things. You can now get Eccentric Earth t-shirts with Chris Higgs on here. Yes, that one. Yes, the serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, not probably not going to happen, but I'll... I'll if it, ever, if it ever does, I'll feel for the first one I feel for. <laughs> Well, if people enjoyed this episode, hopefully for the right, for the right reasons, um, where can they find you <laughs> online, Chris? Sorry, I love that. Just like, and if you enjoyed it for the wrong reasons, like, stop. Yeah. Stop it. If, if you got a real kick out of the child molestation or murder, just, just yeah. subscribe. You know, if you... <laughs> yeah, if you have a paraphilia, which is today's word, um, <laughs> off all this horrible shit, then uh, definitely get some counselling. You know, see, see some people, see see if you can work stuff out. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at higher underscore boy. I do a couple of different podcasts. I do uh, Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock podcast with two of my Canadian mates, uh, Brandon Shane Masala and Tom Caldwell. We are a Hitchcock historical podcast in the sense that we go through uh, chronologically go through each Hitchcock movie and discuss it and analyse it and view it through various um, viewpoints and lenses uh, and it's really fun and really enjoyable the other uh, podcast that I co-host is North by Nerdwest and that is me and one of my best mates Em Platt um, and we just catch up every so often on nerdy stuff that we're really into so if you're really into kind of like sci-fi or geek or horror or you know just chat about stuff we've been on real kind of uh, drag race kick recently so there's been discussion of that and misogyny and feminism and all kinds of um, cool stuff and basically we just end up laughing for over an hour straight so if you're looking for some uh, 
light and fun and entertaining, then please feel free to check us out. You can find Not By Nerd West on iTunes, and you can find Good Evening Pod as part of the fandom pod... <laughs> of the fandom podcast network. I never get that right. But <laughs> it's a mouthful. It really is. Like, it's, it's one good thing about just running your own thing. It's just being like, it's on iTunes, and I don't... Yeah, don't do anything else. Um... But yeah, we are on there, and we are on iTunes and Stitcher, and I think Podbay as well. So uh, please feel free to check us out, and if you really like us, then like and subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Twitter by going to at eccentric underscore earth. We're on Facebook. Go to www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. And we're on Instagram. All our social media are kept up to date daily. We're well, we're trying to get back onto daily. It slipped for a little while, but we're we're coming back strong. We have some fun info about upcoming episodes and nice little tidbits on things that happened in that day in history to keep people entertained. So give us a follow and hopefully you'll enjoy that. And if you want to write in with any th- suggestions about things you want us to see us cover or about any feedback, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. You can find us on all major podcast providers, so please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And we're on YouTube as well. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Chris. I hope I didn't make you think you're going to have a nice topic and then spring something on you and it's now left you feeling awful because I feel bad for <laughs> for this if I'm being honest. Oh, listen, to be fair, if I wanted to feel bad, I'd be like, I can't believe you did this to me, Amy. I can't believe... <laughs> You know, no, listen, I have had a blast. I mean, it's like a very dark topic that got much darker. I didn't realise it would go that, as dark as it did, but who knows? Um, it is, it's always a lot of fun coming on. So, yeah, I am very, <laughs> very uh, happy you invited me on, and I'm glad to be your new, uh, what was the term, dark shit correspondent. <laughs> so, next time there's Amy's going to be covering, like, you know... Like just bold, like just weird shit. No doubt I'll be on going like, oh my god, how weird is this shit? It's when someone asks you how the episode went, it's like, yeah, it was horrible. There was child kidnapping, multiple molestations and rape, and then it got dark. People can be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh, like if you if you look at my Twitter following thing, I will be tweeting and going like, so that was an experience. Um, <laughs> when I thought it couldn't get darker, it dropped to dark degrees by like 20 and I was like uh oh <laughs> um, which it still takes a lot to surprise me so I'm still very much enjoying it even if you know god that is a fucked up family yeah I I feel bad for the family I feel fa- bad for the other three siblings who said it was a family yeah. of five with the mum and that it's just like what happened to the other three or did you know I mean to be fair I would change my name so. <laughs> yeah, it's like let's not be a stainer anymore. <laughs> no, ironic stainer, and they're a stain on society. Oh, right. Well, mm-hmm. on that note, I will say thank you, Chris, for joining me, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you all next time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.